Well, good morning. You know, it reminded me as you read the scripture this morning of uh, the words that are echoed in uh, Psalm 113, uh, which is one of the Egyptian Hallel Psalms, which they would sing on the way to the feast. And Psalm 113 talks and uses some, much the same words. It talks about our, it asks the question really, who is the Lord our God? Who's like him? And that's a great question, isn't it? Because everybody makes a God in their own image, but really, there is none like him. So the question, who is like the Lord our God, just hits you smack dab in the face, and it says there's no one, and we need to quit accepting substitutes. But he, after he asks the question, and he talks about him being enthroned on high, he says he humbles himself to behold the things that are on the earth and in the heavens. And then he basically echoes the words of Hannah there. He raises the poor from the dust he, uh, to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He, he gives the barren woman, uh, to makes her a joyful mother of children. And it is just this beautiful picture of the love of a God who is transcendent above all things, but he's also imminent. He's close and he's, and he's near and he cares. And it's this love that we're celebrating this weekend as we look at uh, this uh, precious body of believers that's gathered here before my eyes right now to, to see you guys and to uh, get to know you a little bit more after really speaking the last times and to see what God is doing in your life and to rejoice in that. You know, when you're in L.A., which is, uh, you know, a perfectly holy city, uh, you think of San Francisco and you go, well, at least someplace is worse, right? <laughs> you know? And in San Francisco, you're thinking, well, at least someplace is worse with L.A., right, with Hollywood and all that. Uh, but uh, to come up here and to encounter each of you and uh, the ones that I've had the joy, my wife has had, have the joy to talk to and to see what God has done in your life and to see how God is using his gospel here is, is a great joy and encouragement to our hearts. We love to see God at work, you know what I mean? We love to see his gospel impacting lives. And you are... I mean, I know the name of your church is Lighthouse. Seems a little fitting, doesn't it? You're a lighthouse here. And God's going to use you to impact San Jose and San Francisco and around the world, even through many of the people that you've been praying for. So uh, I rejoice with you in what God has done. And it's been a, a genuine blessing, really, to be in your midst and get to talk to you about the love of God and how it really plays out in the church, uh, displaying the love of God in the local church. Uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote this. He said, The creation of the world seems to be especially to this end, that the eternal Son of God might obtain a spouse, that's the church, right, toward whom he might fully exercise the infinite benevolence of his nature, to whom he might, as it were, open and pour forth all the immense foundation of our fountain of condescension love and grace that was in his heart, and that in this way God might be glorified. Yesterday we began to look at that. We talked about the theological actuality that is the foundation of the love of God. We love because he first loved us. We don't have that in ourselves. It's not something we muster up. It's something that he did and gave to us, and then it pours out, uh, out of us because of his great work. But like uh, all theology, theology is not really biblical theology until it's fully realized, until it starts to play out in our lives. If you keep your theology on a shelf, 
you're just a good old Pharisee, right? But when theology begins to be played out in the way by the empowered by the Spirit of God in the way that He directs, then that's genuine theology and action that you see there. And if we are His and recipients of His love, we will love others, and especially here, even the church. Then we considered really the attitudes that come from the inside, uh, the fruit of the love of God, as it were, uh, when we looked at uh, Philippians 1 and 2. You see, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And then he says this, he says, And do not be conformed to this world. <laughs> that is, do not be the word conformed. It's kind of like, uh, you know, we used to live in Kansas. In Kansas, a salad didn't involve like kale and things like that. It was like jello. That was their kind of salad. It was like, you know, they'd have 50 different kinds of jello salads. This is why I'm so svelte and thin and things like that. But the formed is this idea really of, of being pressed into a mold with a jello mold or something like that. Not be pressed into the world's mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, as, as the Lord transforms us from the inside out, uh, he, he takes us as living sacrifices and He uses us to impact the world. We're transformed, transformed by the renewing of our mind, and this inward change then affects our very attitudes. And that's what we talked about the second session. Uh, we live in harmony. Churches live in harmony. Did you know that? Have you ever seen a church that's not harmonious? There's nothing more ugly than a church when it's having problems, is there? I don't know if you've ever experienced that, right? But uh, uh, it's tough. It hurts and it's painful because it's designed to be unified. And we should be able to work through anything and everything as long as we all hold to the same doctrine. And, and that's because we also have the attitude, the second attitude we looked at, which was humility. That is, we, we realize that what we have was given to us by God above, and by His grace we're able to uh, serve in whatever way He sees fit. And then from that, the attitude is we have a genuine desire to be helpful, to serve, to serve others not out of compulsion or obligation, but from the heart. Now we bring this today into uh, the tangible action that flows from that transform transformative love of God. And so I want to reflect this morning on the vital activities which inspire the fellowship of the love of God. The church is a vessel through whom God himself pours out his love and he brings glory to his name. And this manifests itself practically. It's not just in theory. Uh, John Owen, speaking of the church, and by the way, when you think of the church, what are the, what are the uh, pictures of the church in the Word of God? You have things like a body, a flock, the building, a temple, things of that nature, a family. All these things, what do they have in common? They're, they're highly inter interconnected. They're intimately involved with one another and related. And John Owen, when he was talking about the church, he says, living interaction with the saints and believers is essential to the Christian. Uh, there is no Lone Ranger Christian, right? 
There is no Christian kind of like, and you run into people like this from time to say, well, I just worship God on the golf course. Okay, well, my experience with golf has been quite different, honestly. But, uh, you know, this idea, I just go into nature, right? I'm going to go over in the hills. I'm going to go to Santa Cruz and, you know, this kind of thing, right? It's not that picture, right? The, the, we're meant to be interconnected. If your body is not interconnected, is that a problem, doctor? You got a little more Jones here, right? Uh, is that, it's a problem if part of your body just says, I'm on my own, right? That's something you got to deal with, right? I mean, if I'm talking to you right now, and all of a sudden my right arm decides it's just going to do its own thing, and it's just over here doing this, I'm saying, Lord, people, open your Bibles, please, to the Word of God. And all, you're going to be going, what in the world's up with this dude, right? What is it? He needs a doctor. Dr. Chen, get over there quickly. Help this man. Because that is not the way the body's supposed to act. In fact, when you think of the issue of AIDS, acquired immune deficiencies, what's going on there? The body's not doing its job and it's attacking itself, really. That's a problem. And it's not to look like this. So Owen says, living interaction with the saints of believers is essential to the Christian. It will sharpen by exercise and practice those spiritual gifts on which the true gospel wisdom is founded. And that theology itself will be strengthened and increased by such holy practice. This service in the church is the essential inner nature of theology itself. If you open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, or chapter 5, verse 13, we're, we're going to look at this this morning, and we're going to consider the vital activity of service as it plays out according to God's design here in the local church. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 15. With your Bibles open, let me read our passage. I read from the New American Standard, in case yours is just a little bit different, and it says this. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole Lord law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by the other. Let's begin with a word of prayer, shall we? Father, we come to you this morning and we ask you a very simple request. Lord, help us to set aside our distractions. Help us to focus upon your word. Lord, help me to clearly communicate it in the way that is in perfect accordance with your desires. Lord, give us the spirit of that little baby that came to Hannah, Samuel, uh, when he was just a young boy, and you spoke to him. Give us the, the, the spirit of that where he said, Speak, for your servant is listening. May that be us this morning. In Christ's name. Amen. Now, Paul begins by reminding us that our service is a vital component of our biblical fellowship. And he starts by talking not of the burden of service, but rather, point number one on your outline, the freedom of service. Now, honestly, a lot of times when we think about, well, we've got things to do in the church and service and things like that, if we're not careful, we begin to look at it like it is some sort of burden, right? Well, nobody else is going to do it. I guess I'll do it. Or, boy, I wish the other people in the church would step up and do things so I don't have to do so much. 
But what this passage says is we are given a freedom, and it's a wonderful freedom. And we're Americans, right? We love the word freedom. We get excited when we hear the word freedom. I mean, my heart, I'm from Texas, so my heart just pity pass. Freedom, that, to me, that means I can do what I want, when I want, and all this kind of stuff. This is going to be a very different picture for you, right? It's a true freedom. It's a biblical freedom, and it's a wonderful, wonderful picture. Look at what it's a freedom to serve. Look at Galatians 5.13. He says, for you were called to freedom, brethren. Only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Service to one another, according to this passage of Scripture, breathed out by the mouth of Almighty God who does not lie, service to one another is a blessed provision of God. And it benefits not only the one who is served, but also the one who does the serving. Sadly, Many people just kind of look at service as a negative thing, right? In our society, we want to be served. We don't want to serve. And so it's negative. It's something that we, when we do it, we're doing it merely out of obligation if we're not careful. Other people will uh, uh, ignore the call to serve, even within Christian circles, by asserting their freedom and saying, you know, I'm free not to serve, you know, because I'm free. I can do what I want. And I'm just, I don't have a peace about being in your ministry in this way. That's wrong as well. Uh, these are, there are really two extremes to Christianity that, is, and that need to be avoided here, okay? And this is true across the board in theology. The first extreme is legalism, and the second extreme is licentiousness, okay? We do not want to be characterized by legalism. Has anybody in here ever been a part of a legalistic church at some point? You know, where you really just feel it's performance, right? Yeah. I mean, we've, we've all kind of, I grew up in the South, you know, you know, there are a lot of rules, man. I remember one church I was in, wasn't a church of mine, but I was in a church that had a list of rules on the wall. I'm going to talk about the Ten Commandments. It was like all the things you're not supposed to do listed in the foyer of the, the, the deal. It's like, wow, this is really a lot of freedom here, right? Legalism is this conviction, right, that law-keeping is the ground of our acceptance with God. I'm going to earn God's favor by doing the things that he's called me to do, and then he'll be kind of obligated to me. It's really not that different than taking your kid to, you know, the mall to see Santa Claus or whatever, you know, and you get in his lap, and I'm here, here's what I want, give it to me, or a genie in a bottle kind of thing where, you know, here's my three wishes. You're obligated to answer my three wishes. Give it to me. And everybody views, a lot of people view God, and the legalist views God kind of like that. If I do the right things, if I rub the lamp the right way, God's got to give me my desires. That's a problem. It's works righteousness, isn't it? And you're not saved as a result of works. You know that very clearly. You can't earn acceptance with God by what you do. You can't. You uh, myself as a believer, on my best day, when I'm the most obedient that I am, which is, you know, sadly, not so great, right? On my best day, I'm no more acceptable to God than I was on the worst day, because it's by His grace. Now, does this mean there's not a place for works? Of course not. I mean, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 talk about the grace of God and how we're not saved by works. But Ephesians 2.10 says there are works involved, right? But they're not something that earns, they're something that results. So it says, for by grace you have been saved, by faith. And that, not of yourself, not as a result of works. Why? 
so that no one can boast. And then he says what? He says, we are his workmanship, those of us who have been saved by grace, and we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. You see that, the difference? Good works don't earn it, but good works result from it. Now, this is very, very important. Our works and the things we do in our service are resultative, not causative. The legalist repositions good works for the Christian from a fruit of salvation to the foundation of salvation. Everything's rule-based, not relationship-based. Everything is about the outside and not being transformed from the inside out. Let me ask you a question, okay? And you can just answer this honestly, however you feel. Yeah, but I, I think I'm going to know how you're going to answer it. Okay, which would you rather hug? A lobster or a puppy? A little cute, cuddly puppy. Which would you rather hug? Just think about that. I know I need to give you a little time to process that. Would you rather hug the lobster or would you do the puppy? What's the difference between a lobster and a puppy? Well, there's quite a few in biology. But the, one of the big differences, why you probably would rather hug a puppy, is the puppy has a skeleton on the inside, right? And the lobster has his skeleton on the outside. He has an exoskeleton, and the puppy has the endoskeleton. And, and the endoskeleton, the rules are still there, but they're encased by a warm, fuzzy puppy. And legalists are kind of like the lobster, man, coming to my church. Here I am, clippity-clip, clip, you know, they come at me. You know, I got rules for you. We open the same Bible, but we come to a different conclusion. One concludes that I must earn favor by wearing my works on my sleeve like a Pharisee, and the other one says, Woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips like Isaiah. Or, Lord, have mercy on me like the publican that the Pharisee made fun of. We look and see that it is because of the great and mighty work of God and his love that we can be saved. And because we have been saved by such a great God who transcends, like that Psalm 113 said, because of that, where would I not want to follow him and how would I not want to serve him? Can you serve a master who does everything for your good and for his glory for the right reasons? And that's the difference right there. Paul says we're not bound by the law. It's not the source of our righteousness. In fact, he says right here, he says we're set free. And we love and we're free to love because he first loved us. And we serve because we, get this, want to. If you don't want to serve in some way, if you don't want to exercise your spiritual gifts, you need to do some, you need to do some soul searching on your relationship with the Lord and your understanding of the theology of what service is. We don't serve out of obligation because somebody expects us to. We serve because we want to. Legalism, on the other hand, feels compelled to do these things and rather than to be compassionate and passionate about doing these things. And in legalism, works are a burden, not a pleasure. And I tell you what, to serve with your spiritual giftedness I'm not saying it's easy all the time. I'm not saying you don't get discouraged all the, at times. I'm not saying that it isn't hard and it feels thankless because we, we can easily move our eyes from the eternal to the temporal pretty fast. You know what I mean? But to use your gifts that God who loved you gave you is joy. 
We can say like a Chick-fil-A employee, my pleasure, right? The other extreme, the legalist is doing things out of obligation. The other extreme that people fall into is this, is this area of licentiousness. They, they, they got the theology that says this, hey, I understand, <laughs> I'm set free. I don't have to keep rules anymore. I can do whatever I want. Is that a true theological statement or not? It's a trick question. You're right not to answer. Yes, you can do whatever you want. But if you're truly redeemed, what you'll want to do is to serve and to love him more and follow him more and know him more. The licentious man swings the pendulum of legalism too far the other direction. He says, listen, I'm free in Christ and I don't have to do anything. I don't need to come to church. I don't need to read my, read my Bible. I don't need to serve and use my spiritual gifts. And it's an abuse of our liberty and freedom. So Paul corrects anybody that might be tempted this, down this path by instructing them first on letter A under point number one, how not to use your freedom. Again, look at verse 13. He says, you were called to freedom, brethren, only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, it's for your fleshly desires. And the flesh there refers to really the entire sinful nature of, of man left to his own. The idea of freedom in Christ was apparently uh, being embraced by some that Paul's writing to here in a manner that led them to embrace self-centered excesses instead of selflessness and, and service. So we're not to use our freedom to feed the flesh and its selfish desires. Since I'm free, the, the argument is I can do whatever I want. And they use that for an excuse for self-centered. And yes, you are free. And you are free to do what you want. But if you're free indeed, what you want to do is serve one another. You want to, from your heart. Not because Pastor Mark or one of the elders comes up and says, you know, we really need somebody helping with the children. We got a lot of children in our church. You should step up. I mean, he should be almost like pushing people back from wanting to serve in other areas. You know what I mean? Because everybody's just wanting to serve. How can I serve? I love Christ so much, therefore I love his people. How can I use my gifts? I want to, if I'm musical, like these folks were, wasn't that nice this morning? I wish I could play the violin like that, by the way. We call it a fiddle in Texas. Doesn't sound the same, but boy, that was sweet. I, there's nothing on violin. I'm a little bit like Saul sometimes when I hear that. I'm like going to this peaceful place, you know. Uh, it's really precious, but that's somebody using a talent that God has given them for the glory of God. So the singing here, even Andrea. Even Andrea. What's Andrea, right? The second one? Right? Okay, even she can glorify God. And she's a mean person. I know that because she was mean to me last night at the, uh, at the, at the house we gathered at. Very mean, brutal person. But even God can use her just like he can use us, right? So you don't want to use your freedom in certain ways. And letter B is how you, are you to, how to use your freedom. Uh, the commentator, the Lutheran commentator, Linsky says, freedom is like a great fortune of money. It can be a great blessing if it's used correctly and a curse if abused. If you've ever known anybody who's inherited a lot of money and didn't have the sense to do something right with it, it's, it, boy, it just blows them up. I mean, look where I come from down in L.A. I used to do a lot of work in uh, very rich and famous people's homes and uh, talk about seeing uh, people who 
had like everything the world seeks after, huge estates, a lot of money, all the power and pleasure and all that kind of stuff. But when you get inside the gates and you get past all the walls uh, without Christ, they're just as miserable as they can possibly be. And they're tearing their lives up using their money to seek after the things that money can't give them instead of using their the, the mammon of earth, as the Bible calls it, for godly purposes. Uh, Linsky was dead on there. Now look at verse 13. He says, you were called to freedom, brethren. Not, do not use your freedom for an opportunity of flesh. But, what does he say? Through love, serve one another. Our freedom provides for us the precious gift of serving one another through love. By the way, in the Greek there, the love and the serve are, are emphatic. It's like through love. You need to do it through love. It's not through obligation. It's not through, uh, uh, you know, I want people to think I'm a nice guy because I'm serving, that kind of stuff. But it's, it's love's like pushed into the front in an emphatic position. And then it says that serve is done that way as well. Do this. Don't, don't, don't grab for the flesh, but serve one another. By the way, the word serve there, it's a verb. It's duluo which is the verbal form of a word I think you guys know something about because it came up in a crossword puzzle, doulos, which means slave, really. Slave. We don't like the word slave. It brings up the most negative of connotations to us, doesn't it? But that's the word that's being used here. And that's somebody who renders service to somebody else for the benefit of that other person. The idea is this, in your freedom, by the means of love, be slaves for the sake of one another. Of course, our theme this week has been displaying the love of God in the local church, and the overall verse that uh, is attached to that is John 13, 34, and 35, if you want to turn over there real quick again. And it records Christ's words to his disciples John 13, 34. Yeah. And Jesus is speaking here to his disciples, as I said, and he says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. He says it twice. Do we need to hear things twice sometimes? Boy, I do. Maybe thrice. I've always wanted to use the word thrice, so that felt pretty good. By this, and this is so key, verse 35, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, Jesus says, because you love one another. This is the evidence. This is what you see. This is what the world sees. This is what San Jose sees. This is what Sunnyvale sees. This is what Milpitas, or however you pronounce it, sees, right? Is that how you pronounce it? Milpitas. All right, it's a little more Spanish to kind of bring to it, doesn't it? This is what they see, okay? They say, I don't want your Christ, and I've got all my other agendas, and I've got my flags, and I've got my desires, and I've got all this kind of stuff that is, in your eyes and mine, warring against the very theology of Christ. But when they look around, and they're fighting for all these things to gain acceptance and to gain clicks and to gain everybody's honor, they look around and they see a group of people that goes, wow, they love each other. Wow, that's a family. Wow, what's going on in their lives? By this, all men will know that you are Christ's disciples if you love one another. If it plays out like that in service. 
But as we read those verses, and we've talked about them a little bit, the, uh, do you remember the context? The context of the verses, it, it's the Last Supper. And Jesus does something very unusual. He washes his disciples' feet. He serves them. Now, <laughs> you know, we don't do a lot of foot washing generally around. It's kind of a strange thing in our society. But in that society, that was part of the game, you know. People came in, they were walking around in their little sandals, and it's dusty outside, and so a good host, somebody showing hospitality, somebody welcome in, would, would have their feet cleansed and washed. And so Jesus is giving a spiritual illustration as he does it, but he's also talking about serving one another in the process because he comes down to this area about how you love one another. And, you know, we come to those things, and there have been churches throughout history and people who are like, Oh, I read that, and here's what we need to do. Let's have a foot-washing ministry. Let's start that out. Let's see, who can we get? Kevin, Kevin, you want to start that out? Let's get, well, how should we do that? Let's get it. Let's have a committee gather together and figure out how to do this program. Okay, first we're going to need, what are we going to need to do foot-washing? We need some basins. Well, there's a lot of different sizes of feet. We should get a, a basin that works across the board for a size 13. What if Shaq visited our church a size 26? So what are we going to do? You know, and then we got a little bitty fee, you know, like, like, you know, a child's feed or something. Well, we need all, let's find the right basin. So they go off and they work on that and they get on line and find the right ones. It needs to be the right quality and the right stewardship and, you know, the right cost and all this kind of stuff. Then they, we need soaps too. We need soaps to wash feet properly, right? Well, maybe we should get, uh, what kind of soap should we get? Well, it, it needs to be, you know, something that doesn't have any chemicals because some people are sensitive to that kind of stuff. And even with the scent, you know, some people like, you know, the vanilla kind of sense, or it smells like a cookie on your feet or something like that. we got to figure that out. Let's get a second subcommittee to go out and do that. And then the towels. What kind of towels should we be using? Should it be a chamois? We can leave kind of a nice gloss. Should we wax them up a little bit? Should we pluck some hairs? What should we do? Let's think about it. They begin to make this massive program, and all the while they're missing the entire point of the thing, which is serve one another as Christ served us. Christ served us by giving his life so that we might be redeemed. He poured out his love so that we could be reconciled to a holy God. He cleansed us, and all of us, not just the feet. And he left for us an example to follow, and he redeemed us, and his spirit indwells us, and his word guides us. And the call is this, if you love me, you'll love one another. We don't program that. There may be programs that do that, I'm not saying that, but what we do is it's an individual hard thing that is contagious without the body and that is instigated by the power of Almighty God. Do you serve one another? Do you love one another in that way? I can tell you as I watch you, I've seen a lot of it. There's a lot of good service going on here. And I know when you say stuff like that as a pastor, especially up here preaching in your, your preaching voice, right? So it's kind of more uh, in your face sometimes. And it feels like, wow, he's kind of angry at us about this whole serving thing. And it's not what I'm getting at, okay? What I'm getting at is we need to think about this before God as individuals. And as the individuals of the church begin to say, you know what? I have been redeemed. That grace that we sing of how deep the Father's love for us. Well, why should I get a taste of even his reward, right? How wonderful is that? He's redeemed me for a purpose. And part of that purpose is to build up the body here through love and service. And so everybody sitting here that professes to be a Christian 
should examine yourself. If I am a Christian, if I have been loved like that, which if you're a Christian, you have been loved like that, then I love, 1 John 4, 19. Therefore, I have an attitude of humility and helpfulness, and I want to live in unity, so I want to serve practically. Everybody wants to be served. We were raised to be served, right? If I could only make it on my way, everybody have to serve me. I'd like to have my driver. I'd like to have somebody clean the house, a nanny for the children, a lot of people under me at my job. We love to be served. But the countercultural, supernatural call of our Lord is to serve. And that's what he's saying here in Galatians 5. Serve in love, through love, serve one another. And that's his example, isn't it? I mean, I think of Mark 10, 45. What did Jesus say? What was his testimony? His testimony was, he, talking of himself, the Son of Man, he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Now, why in the world do we want to give ourselves a perk that the Lord chose not to give himself? In other words, the Lord came to be served, no, the Lord came to serve. The Lord came to serve. Well, now I, can, I don't have to serve, right? I can just do my own thing. But it's like, no, you're to follow on his example. Serve. It's so illustrated. You read through your Gospels, and I hope every now and then you're circling around through your Bible and hitting the Gospels, for example, and just to see what Christ's ministry was. And, and it's so illustrated there in vivid colors in the gospel. I mean, in the gospel itself, too, just the gospel itself. Think of what he did. Now, just right off the bat, the incarnation. <laughs> What's the incarnation? Christ, preexistent from before the foundation of the earth, our eternal God, became flesh, right? In the incarnation. I'm not talking about the eternal generation. I'm not talking about all those kind of things. What I'm talking about is he left heaven and came here. Now, I don't know about you, but kind of my excitement through most of my life and my great hope is one day that I will be in heaven. And uh, to think of getting to heaven, all oh, the tears are wiped away, the sorrow is no more, no more pain, no more sin, all that kind of stuff for me. And then if Jesus or somebody was, God was to say, you know, I'd like you to go back. I would be like, well, the, the tears are coming back. Lord, why are you saying that? Right? I think of Lazarus. I don't know exactly what his situation was, but he... Lazarus come forth and he comes out in his grave clothes and all that kind of stuff. And if I'm Lazarus, I'm like, what? <laughs> you know? Listen, in the incarnation, there's such a love that Jesus Christ left the throne room of God. Look at Isaiah 6, right? Isaiah 6 says, I, Isaiah says, I saw the glory of the Lord, Yahweh, high and lifted up. The train of his robe fills the temple. There's smoke. There's these cherubim flying back and forth with six wings covering their eyes, covering their feet and flapping around. And they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Everything in heaven is exists. Sinners around him being served there to him, right? And he says, now, and by the way, Isaiah 6, who Yahweh saw according to John 12, 40 or 41, is Jesus Christ. Okay, you can look that up. That's who it was, Jesus Christ. And he came out of love. Why? To get a better throne in heaven? 
No, he's exalted in a sense already, right? He's on the throne. Why? He came out of love to serve and rescue us. You see that in the gospel? In the incarnation itself, he left heaven to come here. And not only that, I mean, if it was just the incarnation, now I'm a baby, I have to be taken care of, all that kind of stuff in a sense. Now he has to sit in, in submission to parents as the almighty God creator of the universe. Think about that. He's limited himself in some ways, right? He's, he's chosen not to exercise all the effects of deity, and so he grows up, and he puts on flesh, and he's tempted in like manner as us, but without sin. And his creation, who looks around and says, oh, isn't this great? Jesus is here, and look at what he's done for us. Is that what happened? Well, they're going, what's that? Kill him. Church was going, kill him. You know the church, the, the Pharisees, the synagogues were doing that, the Jews. And the Romans did it eventually too, right? I mean, he submitted himself. Picture Christ being arrested. If Christ doesn't want to be arrested, you think he could have got out of that? People say, oh, isn't it tragic what happened to that great teacher, Jesus Christ? No, it's not tragic. It was a plan from before the foundations of the earth. Nothing tragic about that. He did that out of love. You know, what happened when they came to him in the garden, right? We're looking for Jesus. Well, I am. He uses that name of God, right? It goes all the way back to, you know, uh, Exodus 3. And they all, like, fall down. <laughs> I think there's a little power there, right? Peter's like, I'll protect you, O Holy One. Whacks off the ear of Malchus, the slave. And Jesus says, no, no, no. And he picks up the ear, puts it right back on his head. There's no recovery time. It's just back. I mean, there's a lot of things going on here, right? His power is being saved. When he's being nailed to the cross, does he have to stay on the cross? I mean, could he have, with his own power, just like every Roman soldier picked up that spike to drive it through his wrist or through his feet, and he starts to hit it, and he just go poof, blow on it or something, and it just vaporized the nail each time? He could have been very frustrating to him. He could have had a lot of fun with that, but he didn't. He submitted himself. Why? Did he gain something? No, for we, us to gain something. That's service. That's love. That's grace of God. All the gospel points to the fact that Jesus Christ came to serve those who were dead in their trespasses and sins, who were enemies of a holy God, who were children of wrath, and who didn't want anything to do with him. The Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve. And he left an example that we would follow. So we sit here, redeemed by the blood of Christ, the great act of service, and we say, you know, <laughs> I don't want to use those spiritual gifts he gave me. Selfish. Sinful. Wrong. This is the way the church is to work, by the way. Uh, I've loved, as I said, being with you guys, your wonderful body of believers. Uh, I really sense a community between the ones that I've gotten a chance to interact with. And uh, that's an integral function of the church is that you have that. Let me turn over in your Bibles to Ephesians 4, verse 11. This is God's design. You know, I, I got ideas about the church. I love, you know, in the pastorate, as Dr. Mark can tell you, uh, <laughs> 
it, there's not a day goes by hardly without a book on how to grow your church, how to be better at church, and this is what you ought to do, and this is the trend. I saw an article in, I think it was Christianity Today or some other uh, very untheological magazine that said uh, the pastor was quoted, and the headline was, Instagram built my church. Well, I'm sorry, you know, Christ built the church, and maybe not that one, though. Ephesians 4, you there? Verse 11 says, And he, that's talking about Christ in the context, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Now look at what the purpose with those pastors and teachers, these leaders were. For, why did he give them pastors and teachers? What it says in verse 12. For the equipping of the saints. So as your elders and leaders here are, are trying to pour into yourself and the word of God is pouring into you, they're using that, they're, they're doing that so that you as a body can each one be equipped, right? The equipping of the saints. The saints are those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, why are the saints being equipped? He says that right afterwards. They're equipping of the saints, verse 12, for the work of service. That's your purpose. That's what's going on here for the work of service. What's the work of service? What's the purpose? So that, look at it, to the building up of the body of Christ. This is the way that by God's design, the body is to be built until, verse 13, we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man and the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Until you are made absolutely completely mature and full with the fullness of Christ. That's what the church is to be about. Church doesn't gather just to say, okay, let's sing a few songs, pass an offering plate, hear a message. How long is that guy from Southern California going to talk, right? It comes together. Those are all parts of things, and they're commanded parts of things even, except for how long the guy's going to talk. But then you know, it's for a purpose, right? And the purpose is to equip the saints so that the saints work in serving one another and building up the body so that we all can arrive at this fullness of our time here and our sanctification, which is progressive, can be ever-increasing. That's a precious gift from God, this design. It's not a burden. He's given us the freedom to do this. The freedom to serve and to exercise those, those gifts and rejoice in it. You see, loving one another means serving one another. And serving one another, point number two on your outline, is the fulfillment of love. That's what our passage says. The true ideal for the Christian is not uh, self-focused freedom, but it is the freedom to relish in unfettered service toward others. Again, a clear statement by Paul there in verse 14 he says the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole of what God's after is fulfilled in that. You say, wait a minute, what about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? All that stuff we've talked about. Well, that's there too, but you know what? You're not loving your neighbor as yourself if you don't have the first one. So it's all included. That's the way. You shall love, letter eight, the Lord here. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. To love others as ourselves mirrors the love Christ showed us in his incarnation. But, and listen to this carefully, to love my neighbors less than myself is to use them for my desires. And that's selfish. We are to love them as ourselves. 
through which, as verse 13 said, we serve one another. That's God's perfect design, and that's why we're gifted by the Holy Spirit of God, and every Christian is. Now, if you're a Christian, you are uniquely gifted. Do you realize this, right? God imparts to you, the Spirit imparts to you, spiritual giftedness that is meant for use within a local body of believers. Don't miss that. Because if you're part of Lighthouse you're, and you're a Christian, you have this, uh, this giftedness, and God has placed you here for a purpose. And the body is not working properly, and it's not complete until all those who are a part are utilizing the gifts that God has given them. And the expectation from God is this, use your spiritual giftedness. Each spiritual gift is necessary. Each spiritual gift is vitally important. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6 says there are a variety of gifts, and it's nothing new, but people think, well, this gift's better than that gift, and, you know, go read 1 Corinthians, you'll find out that's not true at all, right? And you already know that, I'm sure. There are a variety of gifts, but what does he say? There's the same Spirit. Isn't that great? You're being used by Almighty God for His Word. There's nothing more precious than that. He says there are a variety of ministries, and there are. But it's the same Lord Master who's over all of them. There are a variety of effects. There are effects that go have long tentacles all over the world, and there are some that you may go, I don't know what's going on. If God's even working here sometimes, right? I think of, uh, <coughs> I had the joy one time when I was in London area to go over to Colchester, which is to a little church on Military Avenue, that uh, Artillery Avenue, that's uh, the church that Spurgeon got saved in. And it's a tiny little church. Itsy bitsy. I mean, you could fit right right here. And I uh, went over there with a buddy of mine that we were coming back from Siberia, and we t- had, took a few days, and we went over there and uh, called a phone number, found somebody. They opened up the church. We went inside. I just kind of wanted to see this place that had such a significance, right? And a uh, British lady welcomed us in with, you know, biscuits and tea and all this kind of stuff. And... Uh, I just sat there and I thought, here's this little church that is still active, by the way, and still doctrinally sound. Probably 14 people go to it, okay? But on a snowy night, a century and a half or so ago, you know, Charles Spurgeon lost Charles Spurgeon. His dad was a preacher, his grandfather was a preacher, but he was lost. He is heading through a snowstorm to go to church out of obligation, right? And he can't get there, so he turns down this road and he ends up this little bitty tiny chapel. And he goes inside. The preacher, the gifted man of God, (laughs) wasn't there because he couldn't get there because of the snow. An elder, the gifted man of God, was there. And he got up and preached the gospel. He preached the gospel and the Spirit of God opened the heart of Charles Spurgeon, opened his eyes, and the scales fell off. And that, according to Spurgeon's testimony, was the time and the moment that he was realized his salvation. Spurgeon left there many years later as he's the successful Charles Spurgeon. I mean, the guy's everything's still in print now, all this kind of stuff. The guy still has impact, even as we stand here today. He says, I wonder who that guy was. And he, he talked about it. He said, I'd like to know the guy. I'd like to thank him for being faithful that night. Two guys came forward and said, I'm that guy. 
He met with them both. They weren't the guy. That's, that's human nature, isn't it? You never know who it was. But I think of that. I think of that situation. I think of that man, whoever he was, that stood up and was faithful that day. We don't know his name, but God knows his name. And to me, he has uh, part of all that Spurgeon has accomplished by his faithfulness in that. And our job is just that. Be faithful. Does it matter if everybody knows we're faithful? Does it matter if Pastor Chen gets up here and he pats you on the back because, well, I want you to know that's a great thing you're doing, your ministry? We should do that. We should be a thankful people. It's a mark of our salvation. But if it doesn't happen, do you go, why doesn't anybody think me? I'm doing as much as everybody else around here, you know? Listen, be faithful. Be used by a mighty God. And God is the one who does the work. He's the one who gives the effect. He's the one who gave you your gift in this, and he's the one who will use you in ways that you'll never understand. You never will know until you get to heaven even, probably. And even when you get there, you don't go, wow, that's cool how God used me. You do what? You take your crowns and you throw them down because he's the one who did it anyway. We have no concept of how God's using us, but we think we do. And because of that, we need to just kind of stop and have faith in the sovereign hand of God and trust him that if we do what he calls us to do, that he's going to use that in his purposes in his time and for his glory. First Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26 says, let all things be done for edification, for the building up. That facilitates the practice of the body. Fellowship is a word that involves generally caring for one another and ministering to them in the ways the Lord has gifted you. And what I'd encourage you to do is this, is homework. Do you like homework? Doesn't everybody like homework? As you're reading through your Bible in the New Testament, I want you to notice anytime you see the words, one another. And I don't know, maybe you're afraid to mark in your Bible. Some people are like, oh, holy Bible. Yeah, you, I just highlight it, mark it. If you don't like marking your Bible, make a little notepad and start adding them in the reference by it. And look at what you're called to do. If you really want to know what Christ wants you to do, it's found right there in the one another's. Let me just burn through a few of them really fast. Okay? We are commanded to minister to one another in several ways, right? James 5.16, confess your sins to one another. Quit pretending like you're perfect and be honest. And I say that to myself as much as anybody. You know, sometimes we need to just be, it doesn't mean you're going around, well, you know, I walked down, I should have given you the seat, and everything's just a constant confession. But when there's something serious, don't be pretending like you got it all together when you fixed, when God fixed it on the inside for you. But say, you know what, I've had struggles too. Confess your sins to one another. Encourage one another. First Thessalonians 5, Romans 14. That is a super good ministry. There's a lot of people hurting, right? Encourage people. You can encourage them by talking to them. You can encourage them by visiting or calling or texting or emailing or uh, sending a card, that's a thing that you put in the mail. There's a stamp. I don't know if you're aware of those. Bear with one another burden. burdens, Galatians 6, 2. Pray for one another. How's your prayer life for one another? Uh, we at our church have a, a church directory. It's an electronic church directory. And one of the things we do is we give it to each new member and we update it from time to time. And the idea is it's not just a picture book, so you have everybody's address and phone number. It certainly does that. But it's kind of a prayer list. Just go through it. You don't have to pray for all of them in one day or anything. I just pray for one or two. You guys have a phone list or whatever you might have that lists people. That's a great thing to do. That's James 5, 16. Pray for one another. 
Be kind to one another. You want to stand out in this world today? Be kind. <laughs> Kindness is, is pretty rare anymore. Be subject to one another in love. Ephesians 5.21. Be hospitable to one another. Last night we went over to someone's house and we were welcomed in their home. They showed great hospitality. That's such a blessing to us and to the others who were there. Be like that. God's blessed you with a place. Have somebody over. Serve one another. We've talked about that today. Galatians 5. First uh, Peter 4 says that as well. Comfort one another. You know, sometimes people are hurting, right? You've got a baby that's just been born. That's a joyful thing. But at the same time, it's in a neonatal ICU, perhaps. This could be very heart-wrenching at times. How can we comfort? How can we come alongside? How can we serve? Like the testimonies yesterday with meals and different things like that. Um, restore one another. You know, when somebody sins and they repent, don't be punitive. You welcome them back. Like that prodigal son got welcomed back. And you trust the Lord in that. Forgive one another. Just as you've been forgiven. Listen, have you been forgiven? If you're a Christian, you've been forgiven. You've been forgiven a lot more than you can ever forgive anybody else. Forgive one another. Admonish one another. Romans 15, Colossians 3. Teach one another. Colossians 3, 16. Exhort one another. Encourage and press on. Hebrews 3, 13. Love one another. Boy, there's so many verses on that. I won't even list them for you. And that's the key to it all. If we love one another, we will minister. If we love one another, we will serve. We will show hospitality. We will care for one another. We won't seek to uh, forsake our assembling together, as is the habit of some, as the time draws near. We will love and care for one another. Romans 12, and I'm just going to quote this, okay? Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Right? Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. There is a warning at the end here. I'll just mention it quickly. And that is if you bite, if you do the opposite, if you bite and devour one another, take care you're not consumed by one another. There's a one another for you. Don't bite and devour one another. That's the opposite. When we're selfish, these negative things bite and, 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 and devour. These are like wild animal. You can picture it, right? And then he says, what? What will happen? You'll be consumed. It's a Greek word that's used. You can get this, maybe. Uh, it's certainly in Southern California, we understand that it's a word used of devastation by fire. <laughs> just when the fire goes through, man, everything's just stripped clean. You'll be concerned. The church that rejects the call of the Lord to love as he loved in favor of selfishness is disobedient to the Lord and will find turmoil. So as our time comes to an end now, I wonder how we'll all respond, myself included, to the Word of God. I think about what all God can do through this church. Uh, I'm just, I, Kim and I talk about, we just really saw sweetness here, you know, real genuine care for one another. And I wonder what God will do, you know, if the group right here, just this group, you know, however many people this is, uh, would just decide, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to obey Christ, and I'm going to follow his commandment to love others and to serve them. If, if this church just 
commits even to just further to, to minister to one another biblically. If each of you set your mind to love these communities that are around you and to take the gospel to them and to see if God might redeem some and add even to the number of the church from that. What might you see God do just as you follow him from a whole heart? The father of missions, William Carey, said, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. I love the fact when I process through the Bible that God delights in using the small and he delights in using the humble. Israel, great nation, little, tiny little, would have been wiped from the earth apart from God a long, long time ago and forgotten. Moses, the guy was a murderer. Look how he used him. David, he was when Samuel came to town, all the brothers were there, and David's out in the field. They forgot about that. Forget David. He's not the one for sure to be a king. But God certainly used him. Gideon, <laughs> cowering in the wine press, right? Mary, preteen girl who, with a level of spiritual maturity that God used to trust and trust his begotten son with. The disciples, fishermen, tax gatherers, software engineers, you know, those kind of guys. He can use that software engineer. He can use that plan checker. He can use uh, the Apple employees. He can even use Andrea. If you don't believe, read Acts chapter 1 and see the 120 people that were gathered there. What's that? That's probably about what you got here, right? 120 people. And look at what God said. He set the world on fire as they responded to the Spirit of God at Pentecost. One of my favorite verses is Second Chronicles 16, 9a, and it says this, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Will you give your heart completely to him and follow him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving him like that and loving your neighbor as yourself? And then we circle back around sometime and I'm talking to Dr. Chen and I say, how are things going? He says, you know, God is really using this sweet church. And he will tell me about the wonderful things that God is doing, because not because of this weekend or because of his messages or my messages or anything like that, but because uh, God is working in your lives and you're taking that heart fully. And that's my prayer as we depart from you today. Let's pray. Father, we do just rejoice. Uh, I pray for this body as I pray for my own church back home as they are meeting and gathering even now. Um, I thank you for the love of Christ that I see in so many. Father, I pray that each would not be afraid to be a slave, <laughs> to serve, to commit to following you completely. And Lord, we just say, please, Lord, help us to be found faithful. And we ask for your strong support as we serve you, for your glory, not ours. In Christ's name.